This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Our guest today on Late Boomers is Charles Hawley, an award-winning international speaker and author who specializes in racial healing. He helps organizations with communication techniques that reduce racial conflict and help people engage in constructive dialogue. And I'm Mary Elkins. Charles is the author of several inspirational books and the book Black and White, Healing Racial Divide, his book that will deepen your racial understanding with ideas on how to enhance racial unity. He is also a minister. Welcome, Charles. Glad to have you. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be here with you. Can you tell us how you came to be an expert on racial healing? Because how did you start out your background and your early influences? Absolutely. Um, I was born the 17th child, 17th child. Yes, all you women say, ouch. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The the 17th child of a a poor farmer. Both of my parents were actually farmers. So I was born here in northern Alabama in the 1960s during the height of the civil rights movement. And a lot of things were happening here in my uh, home state, a lot of things, um, yeah. segregation movements and thing, things like that. But I grew up in a, in a uh, area that still had uh, Jim Crow laws. You know? mm-hmm. So um, I experienced all of that firsthand. And around about my second grade, I got bused to an all-white school. In fact, all of the Blacks in our neighborhood got bused to an all-white school. And oh. I would like to say that that was a mixture. It was good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there were fights at times. There were skirmishes at times. But overall, we became friends. And even today, I have a, a, a white mother and dad, both of them that I call my parents, you know, simply because I went to that, to that school. They, two of them were my, were my teachers. Mm-hmm. So I have experienced the good and the bad of, of race issues. When George Floyd got, got killed, I actually cried. I, and yes, I am a 57-year-old man, but I, I cried. And I cried because all of those thoughts and feelings and things that I thought I had gotten rid of years ago came flooding back. Mm-hmm. flooding back into my mind. Yes. And so I, I knew then that if I was still uh, holding back a whole lot of hurt and pain, that a whole lot of other people were as well, 
But at the same time, I had a lot of white friends who genuinely really wanted to know more about race issues, and they really wanted to become better. So that's why I wrote the actual book, because I didn't want my white friends to pick up a book and experience blame and shame. You know, I wanted them to really read and learn and grow and gain knowledge. I wanted to actually heal. So that's why I actually wrote the book. And I think that's what makes it different is that it's such a soft tone book with no blame, no shame, but it does talk about the facts. And sometimes the facts are hurtful, but we can actually say that in a way to where people don't feel like you're pointing fingers at them. So that's why I'm on this, I'm on this mission. It's because we need racial healing really bad. Yes, we do. We do. Um, Well, but you write that racism isn't about color, but character. What does that mean? So in the book, I use a tree. Now I'm from the country, right? So uh, we grew just about everything we ate. We had this huge, huge garden. We would grow uh, mm. turn of green, salad, corn, you know, whatever. Oh. And, and so I always think in terms of roots, <laughs> roots, mm-hmm. stem, leaves, right? And so I have this, I have this tree. And at the roots of that tree, I list a whole lot of things that are really the root of racism, you know, uh, anger, hatred, jealousy, pride, all those things. And then people who have all, all those issues end up using race as a tool then to get whatever they want. And so even though race is a, is a, a uh, issue, there are still root causes way below the surface that we really need to get to. And that means we really need to get into inside of people's heads, inside of people's hearts so that they can change right from hatred to love. And when all of that stuff is changed and then all this racism that we see should start to disappear. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to appeal to, the good in people. I'm one of those dreamers, I guess, you know, people say, you know, you just, you know, you're just not living in reality sometimes, you know, but I, I'm one of these people who think that there is some good inside of just about everyone. And sometimes you have to really, really appeal to a person's heart. You have to try to, first of all, put yourself in their footsteps, because sometimes people grow up listening to certain things. And so you have to try and sit them down and talk to them and explain and try your best to appeal to their better, better side. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Because you know? all these people have been carefully taught to be that hateful and angry by the parents that raised them. Yes. Kids aren't yeah. born that way. Yes, yes. taught that. Yes. But can you tell us what are the differences between supremacy, racism, and bias? And why is a person with a bias only not a racist? Sure, absolutely. So supremacy uh, is when a person believes that their particular race is supreme, that their race deserves all of the power, all of the resources, uh, the best that things 
that life have to offer, that their race should be the, the, the ones to actually govern and rule. And so they set about things in motion to actually make that make make those things happen. You know, so that's a, a supremacist. Now, a racist is a person who believes in racial separation. Now, this person may not necessarily believe in racial supremacy, but they believe that their race should be separated hmm. from other people. Actually, I went to college with a person who actually believed that. Now, see, this, this person was quick to say, well, you know, I don't believe in racial supremacy, but I do believe that each race should stick with its own kind, you know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's a racist. So a racist believes in racial separation. Now, mm -hmm. a person who has a bias is a person who has learned something negative about a race and a person just might believe that. So they don't believe in supremacy. They don't believe in racial separation, but they do have some negative beliefs about race that they learned along the way, maybe their parents, maybe, maybe their friends, maybe, uh, you know, some, someone, uh, someone else. But that particular person then who simply only has a bias has a misunderstanding, right? They're not a racist. They're not a supremacist. They just have a misunderstanding about race, something that they believe that, they, that uh, perhaps they were taught when they were five or six or seven. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I had a, had a uh, friend in college, a black friend. Uh, he went to college with two white people, right? So he actually met them, met them there. And this was like 1984, 1985, right? So uh, my black friend lived in a big, gorgeous house, right? So, and w one day he was actually out outside cutting his grass. His white college friends just just so happened to just pass by that day, riding by, and they saw him cutting the grass. My uh -huh. black, black friend. Okay, so the next day at school, the white guys say, uh, "You know, we didn't know that you cut grass for a living." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, they it was like, and he and and uh, he said, uh, 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 "No," he said, "I live there. That's my house." You know, and they were like, <laughs> really? No, nah, that's not your house. That can't, that can't be your house. He was like, yeah, that's that's where I live, you know. <laughs> and so that's a great example of a person who has a bias. Yeah, because they were already friends. Right. Right. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Right. absolutely. Oh, my absolutely. gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... So you see, so you see, some sometimes we can call people racist who really aren't aren't racist. You know, they yeah. just simply have a bias something that they something that they picked up and learned that that's simply not true yeah mm -hmm. well there's so many people in this country and throughout the world who are experiencing one of those right now and i'm not sure what to do to change it but perhaps you have a, a solution um you already mentioned get to their heart but there's how do you get to the hearts of so many people yeah yeah, absolutely. You have to keep appealing to them and helping them, trying to show them how it's going to make their lives better. Mm. Um, you know, 
I had a one of my biases exposed. You know, every, as we all have biases, every single person has some type of bias. I didn't know I had a bias, but I had that exposed by a white guy who had a rebel flag. Mm-hmm. Want to hear the story? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I I met this guy at work. This is this was 1970s, right? So I met this guy at, at work. He was a tall guy, 6'2", uh, built bushy beard, looked like one of the typical biker type guy, white guy, right? And so I get to know this guy at work, and I find out that he's just a really big, gentle teddy bear. I mean, he'll do anything for anybody. He's a great guy, fun to be around. And he invites me to lunch one day. So I said, okay, sure, fine. We, so we walk in outside, we walk to his truck. And on the way there, I spot on the back of his truck, a huge rebel flag, big rebel flag. Covers the whole back window, right? Oof. I stopped walking. <laughs> I go, I touch him and I say, hey man, what's that thing right there? And he looks at me and says, what do you mean? He said, it's a flag. And so I took it from there that he, he really did not understand. And so I took the time during our lunch to talk to him about what that flag meant to me and my people and, you know, the hurt, the pain, the scars. And all during lunch, I'm, I'm explaining, and he's, he's just like a champ. He's, he's sitting there taking it all in, listening. And then we get back to work, and I'm expecting him to say, you know what, I really need to take that down. <laughs> but the guy says, no, I, I, I'm not going to take my flag down. He says, it's, for me, it's not about hatred. It's about heritage. Hmm. Hmm. And so he, he and I had several discussions and some of them got it, became really, really heated, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to just kind of back off of him and just watch him for a couple of weeks. And I did that. I watched him and he's the same old guy, good guy. And then we finally had one more conversation and this is where he exposed my bias. He said to me, um, you know, Charlie, he said, I understand what you mean. And he said, some people use this flag as a symbol for hatred. And that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And he said, but everyone's ancestors have done something wrong at some point in time, including your ancestors. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, for me, this is not about hatred. This is about heritage. And he says, I hate the fact that my ancestors had slaves. That was Mm. wrong. That was absolutely wrong, he said. But that's not all they were. They were fathers. They were parents. They were were cousins. They were leaders. They're not summed up by that bad mistake they made. Mm. I got to thinking. I said, wow, you know, this guy's, this guy's right. And then I thought, I thought everyone, everyone, who waved that flag was a racist. But here I was, I had met one of the best friends that I've ever made. And we're still great friends today. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah that but is he, great. But he still's got, he still has a rebel flag. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> Which now has 
more probably frayed right now <laughs> from, yeah. from being so old. Some popular black authors say blacks can't be racist, yet you say they can. Mm-hmm. And a second question as what are the four pillars of racism? Sure. So since I say, I think that racism is a state of mind, it doesn't has nothing to do with a person's skin color. It has nothing to do with what a person has, whether they're wealthy or poor. Racism, I think, is is a state of mind. Yeah. And then depending on what that person has, then that person can actually turn and do. So if a person has a state of mind or racism and they're poor, then they really can't have any power over you, but still they have they have a racist mindset. Right. So the the Pillars that, that I talk about have no color. They are colorless pillars. So anyone can have them, right? So pride, I talk about that. That's a that's anyone can have pride, including black people. Okay. Oh, so yeah. pride, hatred, I talk about that. Jealousy, envy, I talk about that. And so all of these things I mentioned are props or pillars that keep racism going. And yes, black people can be racist. Now, I'm 17th child. I have a lot of cousins. I have a huge family. And even in my family, there are a few people who I would classify as racist because they believe in a separation of blacks and whites. So absolutely, people, black people can be racist. Hmm. Wow. Tell us about systemic racism as you detail it in the book. And please give us some examples of the generational devastation that it can cause. Sure. Some people actually actually say today, and I really don't don't understand why, uh, that there is no quote unquote systemic racism. Sure, there mm. is. And there and, and there and there has been for a, a very, very long time. I talk about several different areas, areas such like financial, uh, education areas, health, you know, and all these areas, things can be set up in such a way that poor people or either, you know, minority people do not have the correct access or any access to uh, clean water, good schools, good health care, hospitals, and, and so forth. So when slavery was actually going on, this system was actually built then. And this system of finances, health care, social system, and everything was actually built for the people who were rich and well-to-do. It was not built for slaves to take advantage of. It was built for free people and, and folks who were rich and well-to-do. And even after the Civil War, the whole system was not dismantled. And even the portions that were dismantled were actually built back. <laughs> so yeah, we, like voting. Yes, yes, yeah. ab- absolutely, absolutely. We see that today. Mm-hmm. So yeah. some, sometimes we can take we we can we can make progress and we can, you know, knock down some of these systems only to see them being built right back up again. So then how can blacks overcome these systemic situations? One word, allies. We have to make allies, which it makes it so very important for us to 
talk to people in a way where they don't feel blame or shame. We have to have allies, have allies across the whole spectrum. We have to have white allies, Asian allies, Hispanic allies. Uh, you know, we must join together and we must present freedom, equality as something that everyone can take advantage of because mm -hmm. there are a group of people who don't believe in that. They only believe in controlling, you know? And so we have to have allies and we have to join together uh, and so that we can lift our voices, get some places in office and pass some laws that are just and right for everyone. Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um, you have a very controversial approach to the Christian church as both the refuge of racism and the answer to racism. As a minister, you must have a very interesting take on that. Tell us how that can be. Sure. When I was studying the role of, of church in our, in our American history, I was so hurt, so disappointed to come across so many bad things that, that some people in the church, not all, but some people in the church did. Uh, racism was actually taught as being scriptorial by lots of preachers, especially in the, in the South. So the church was actually used then as a tool to actually further uh, racism. In fact, the vice president of the, of the uh, Confederacy made a speech, okay, called the Cornerstone Speech. And in that, in, in that speech, he used Bible scriptures to justify uh, the uh, fact as he thought it was that blacks were inferior to whites. And therefore, you know, whites should rule over blacks. And, and so it's, it, it, was, it was a lot of ministerial clergy people who were just doing some very, 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 very wrong thing. Uh, when, when, when you look at uh, the early 1900s, late 1800s, that was when a, a whole lot of church, church splitting happened. In other words, uh, some black people were a part of some white churches, but they were worshiping separately because white people at that time believed that they were superior. And so a lot of the blacks pulled out and formed their own churches, uh, denomination. So it, it's, it's, it's in that, in that split really today hasn't, has, has not healed, you know? Mm -hmm. So there are pastors today, and I actually know some who really want to address racism, but they're just scared. They're just, they're just scared. They're scared of their congregational members because they know that some of their members are some of those who may be just a little radical, you know? And uh -huh. so they don't really have the courage at the moment to actually do that. So I'm praying that that, that that changes. The reason that I say that the church is the answer is because I believe racism is a spiritual issue, that it's a deep, deep spiritual issue. Mm -hmm. And so the church really has to take a stand. It has to take a stand this time on the right side and say that there is no race that is superior. 
and everyone, everyone deserves equal justice, equal treatment, equality. That's what the church has to do. And I'm praying that that will happen. Maybe not by everyone in church, but by enough. Mm -hmm. Wow. Great, great thoughts. You have some very innovative tools and techniques to reduce conflict and promote engagement to get to racial healing and unity. So what are some of those tools? Sure. So I talk about communication and how do we communicate constructively? Um, It's sometimes it can be very, very hard for even the best of friends, white person or and black person to sit down and talk about race because I'm, some of them would say, I'm scared of offending you or I'm scared of saying something that may hurt you or, you know, whatever. And then on the flip side that we have two people who, who really don't even know each other and they're just going at it, you know, so how do we talk? So I talk about something that's called mental posture. So mental posture. So how do you get yourself prepared mentally to talk with someone about race? Right? Mm-hmm. And so I say, well, you have to, first of all, mentally humble yourself. Admit, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the questions. <laughs> but I have to be open and I have to be honest. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have to take that mental, mental posture and get ourselves prepared. And then the second thing we have to do is say, um, I have to understand the way another person communicates because you and I communicate differently. Some people communicate with their whole body. They use their shoulder, they use their head, they use their fingers, and you can swear up and down, this person is just angry, but they're not. They're just expressive. And then other people are so nonchalant and laid back and even kill until you think this person doesn't even care, mm. but, they, but they really do. And so we have to understand that we all have these different ways of communicating. And then another thing that I, that I share a lot is that remember, you and I are people in the present. Uh-huh. We're, we're not in the past, right? We, we can't control what our ancestors did. What, what your ancestors did and what my ancestors did. We have no control over that. So when we speak to each other, let's talk to each other in the, in, in the present. You know, you're in the present, I'm in the present. And let's not blame each other for what our ancestors did in the past. So there has to be forgiveness, you know. Forgiveness, yes. That's so important. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about the stern challenges you've issued to both Blacks and whites. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So I issue three distinct challenges to my Black brothers and sisters and my white brothers and sisters. And one of the challenges that I issue to my white brothers and sisters is, let's talk about race. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. But we have to talk about it. There are so many, even of my high school friends, you know, so many of them uh, who are just scared. They're scared. Um, and they're, they're listening to certain, certain things on TV, you know. 
So yeah. all and they're being influenced by, by some things and they won't touch the subject. I mean, I, I can't give them my book. I'm like, I'm your high school friend. You don't want to read my book? No. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's, how do you get to tell them the stern challenges? That's the hard part, because if you can't, if they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to read about it, then they're not open to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So you so you just have to hope and pray that they either become open to it or that someone else that they trust, you know, talk to them about it. But I know but you do a lot of then. you do a lot of speaking engagements. So probably yeah. people that come to hear you speak are going to be more open and you can yes. maybe you feel like you can reach those people better. Right. Oh, yes, absolutely. Whenever someone either watches something, watches a a, a YouTube video or watches a workshop, they're doing it because they really want to become better. They want to know. They want to learn. They want to grow. Right. And that's something that's very, very good. I'll tell you something weird that happened to that happened one time, though. Uh, I had a person to buy the book online, had a person to leave a review uh, she was a, a middle-aged Caucasian woman, and she left a review that wasn't wasn't quite true. And so I started looking up her profile, and I noticed that on her profile, normally it shows what books you reviewed, but she had purposely omitted my book from her profile so that no one would know that she had read it. Hmm. So I'm weird. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird, especially if she's somebody who's really into putting her knowledge out for everybody to read about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why go through the trouble to buy? It? I mean, she bought it. Why go mm-hmm. through the trouble to buy the book? Mm-hmm. You know, put a review that wasn't wasn't quite true. I mean, she didn't give me a terrible review, but it wasn't a true review. And, and and so and then it was like okay so you don't want anybody to know that you read the book you know so it's some i don't know it's, it's very odd stuff. yeah and but some people of color might ask you the son of slaves brought to alabama from virginia how did you actually defended white people in portions of your book yes absolutely at at some portion in the in the book, I defend everybody. <laughs> I, I, spend, I spend about 90% of my time defending black people. You know, I defend Asians, I defend Hispanics, and yes, I defend my white brothers and sisters because there are some things that are being said, even by some black people, that are simply not true. Okay. All white people are not evil, they are not mean, they are not oppressors they are not racist they're simply not true and white people did not invent slavery that's just not true go on back thousands and thousands of years even before the Atlantic slave trade and you'll find out that just about every single civilization uh, had slaves in some form of another including yes black civilization mm-hmm. had slaves so this thing has been with us, this racism thing, for a long, long time, thousands and 
thousands of years. Okay. So let's not try to just, just pin everything on our white brothers and sisters. And so that's basically what I say in that, in that book is, is that we all need to be placed on the, on the exact same level. All of our ancestors at some point, whether it's thousands of years ago, okay, have taken advantage of someone somewhere. And so let's just all put ourselves on a clean slate, same level, okay, and let's start from here. And let's try and genuinely get to understand one another and love one another. And let's stand up together against, okay, racism. Hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful advice. Um, you know, I have known a lot of people from all races and every single one of them has some sort of self-loathing. So people of color might ask you how you overcome self-loathing that uh, you felt as a child. And can you explain a little about the form in the book from, that it took in the book? Absolutely. So when I was young, we were already poor. My family was, we were, we were dirt poor, dirt poor, you know, but we were, but we were happy. You know? um, but everything around me, everything that I saw around me as, as a kid, as, as a little five-year-old child, everything that belonged to black people seemed to be uh, inferior. It was dirty, dilapidated. Uh, from housing to, you know, it, it, when you went to, to uh, you know, we call it town, but it was a city, you had your black and your white water fountains and, you know, your white water, water, water fountain was actually clean. The black water fountain was filthy. You had your separate bathrooms and everything. And you could see the difference. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, my parents loved hamburgers and there was this, this little restaurant that we stopped by but we couldn't go through the front door. We had to go around back, step over the bushes, step wow. past the briars, go to the, a small dirty window and order our meal. Same price, same hamburger, just different people. And five or six feet away from me sat a garbage can filled with stinking, rotten food. So what does that do to a child, five-year-old child? his mentality. He says, we must not be worth much black people mm -hmm. because nothing that, that we own is good. So I, I grew up thinking that about myself. I thought of myself as poor black trash, you know, and I did for a long, long time. And, and that actually manifested in several different ways. And one of those ways was stuttering. I stuttered oh. terribly as a kid especially at school in front of white kids. Mm. Oh, it was terrible. I would oh. do anything to get out of speaking. You know, as a teacher, I'm sick. No, you're not, you know. So who helped you with your stuttering? Actually, just realizing something helped me with my stutter. Um, I heard a voice one day, not from heaven, a voice on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> And it was a voice of this black man and his voice was so different, so unique until it just arrested my heart. And I just sat stunned listening to this man. And he was saying things like the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. 
And I'm like, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> and he sounds like he's, he's proud of being black. And I thought, hmm, I want to do that one day. Mm. I want to talk like that one day. I want to speak to thousands of people one day. Mm -hmm. Because he says, black is beautiful. And I slowly came out of my, my shell, you know, and I even surprisingly won a Toastmasters speaking award. You know, so While was, you were still in school? Great. Oh, no, no. This, this no. was like uh, last year. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Good for excellent. you. That's but great. you did it basically without speech therapy. Yes, right? absolutely. Just getting inspired. Yes. Yes. So, so how do you how do you advise people to handle self-loathing and, and get over it? You need to see someone doing great things that looks like you. That's why diversity is so important. Okay. Um, I, I say it all the time. Diversity is not about being anti-white. It's, it's really not. We, we don't want to take anything from from anyone. What we want to do is share, share the history, okay? Mm -hmm. So so that we can open up history books and, and see people who look like us doing great things. When I was in high school, I didn't see anyone in my history book who looked like me. And mm -hmm. I, I, I enjoy reading about Thomas Jefferson, you know, and, and, and all those, Benjamin Franklin. I enjoy reading about them, and, and, and I love that. But there was something missing out of my history book. And there mm -hmm. was someone, someone who looked like me. So that, that's, that, that's something that, I, that would actually help a person through self-loathing is to see other people who look like them doing wonderful, great things. That, that's actually inspiring. That inspired me anyway. Yeah. And how do you advise people to unite around racial justice? We have to understand that racial justice puts us all on the same playing field. And it opens up opportunities for us, us all. Mm -hmm. And if we can just all see the good in it, I say I, some people see it as a threat, you know, because they have mm -hmm. this mentality of dominance. And they only believe that either one race dominates one or another race is submissive. And so they spend a, a lot of time trying to stay in a position of dominance because they don't get equality. You know? So if we can just try to con convince as many people as we can that equality is a lot better than dominance, okay? Mm -hmm. So we have, we just have to keep talking. We just have to keep pleading. We just have to keep making friends and making allies and trying to make this place, make this world a better place. From mm -hmm. your lips <laughs> and talking about that, how has your speaking career helped you to clarify your ideas around the subject of racial healing? It has given me a platform and it has given me an audience. And one of the best things about Toast, Toastmasters is you have all this wide range of diversity, P 
people that you can talk to, people all the way around the globe, people around the world, different nations and cultures, you know, are sitting there listening to me, little old me, little old Alabama boy, speak, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and it's and it it actually blows my mind sometimes, but. <laughs> You, you, you have this, this wide array of people that are now listening to you and you're telling them about your hopes, your dreams, your problems, your issues, but you're also inspiring them and trying to get them to all to come together and let's unite and let's have racial healing and, and racial harmony. So it has, it has really been great. And can you give some advice you're an expert on this how do we deal with the tragedies of life without giving up sure one of the most hurtful the most hurtful thing that happened to us was you know i met my wife in college we fell in love we we, we were blessed to have two beautiful children you know we bought a house we had everything but the dog and the picket fence and we were on our way to getting that you know mm -hmm. and then one day um the school calls and my our, our kids we have 13 year old son at the time he was playing sports and the school called and said your son has had an accident. Can you, us, can you meet us at the hospital? So I drive home, I pick my wife up, and we rush to the hospital. And we're thinking that they didn't tell us exactly what happened. So maybe he's just hurt. Maybe he needs some type of an operation. We get to the hospital. The doctor ushers us into a room. He sets us down and he says, Mr. and Mrs. Holly, I'm sorry. Your son didn't make it. <gasps> hmm. That tore us apart. Yeah, what are you even? Um, of course, so, you're saying, why? How? Yeah, what, what, is, what, yeah what is going on here? I was, what do you mean my son didn't make it? What, 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 what are you talking about? What happened? We've just totally had an accident. We, didn't, we weren't told anything was life-threatening. And we just... We just we just lost it. My wife lost it. I lost it. We had an eight year old daughter, and to make a make a long a long long story short, he was playing basketball that day, running down the court, and he collapsed, went to cardiac arrest. Oh, wow! And moments later, died. Oh. And after we had an autopsy done, we we found out that he had a very rare heart condition. That you couldn't Sometime. possibly have known right. about. Right. We did, did not know about it. Oh. So his death threw us into a nightmare. Deep mm -hmm. depression. I fell into deep depression. I blamed God. I wanted to stop preaching. I wanted to stop teaching. Um, my daughter went into seclusion. She was a normally bright, outgoing young girl. She got, she got stuck into a bedroom. My wife fell into suicidal depression. No doctor could help. No medication could help. Even two weeks after our son was buried, she walked over to our bedroom window. It was cold that day. She put her hand up against the bedroom glass and she said, I wonder if he's cold. Oh. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm thinking, what are, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? We're not going to make it through this. We're just not mm-hmm. going to make it, you know. But each and every one of us separately had our own come to Jesus moment, I guess you can call it, mm-hmm. that we had to find meaning in life again. We had to search hard to find meaning in life. And one of those meanings was each other. I mean, we, we suddenly realized, look, we, we got to keep living. We've got each other. We have to, to love and care for each other. Mm-hmm. So each one of us had our own separate spiritual experience. And, and, and we found God in, in a new way. And based on that, we even launched a, a ministry. And then now our ministry reaches, reaches uh, worldwide. You know, we, so it's, it's like terrible things like that can happen. But also in those things, you can find purpose. You know? mm-hmm. That takes me to my question in the last, regarding the last chapter of your book, which reveals a person who's filled with hope and aspirations for life and for race relations in America and around the world. How do you, how do you find this faith? What's the basis of your hope and aspirations and how can you cure the racism and that's going on in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So the base basis of my hope is, is, is this, Again, I believe that there is basic good in most people. And I believe that if you dig deep enough, make the right plea, uh, present the right argument, so to speak, that eventually people will actually come around. And if you convince them that it's best for them, that they would eventually come around. Mm-hmm. And so... I believe that on, on this journey that I'm making and that you're making and that other people are making, that we're all in some in one way or another trying to bring the good out of someone somewhere, right? We're trying to convince people that good things are right, okay, and mm-hmm. they should do those things. And I just I just believe that I know that. I'm not the only one out here doing this. I know that there are, there are other people doing it as well. So I just believe that things will change for the better. And I don't believe that we, that we will actually make racism disappear, but I believe that we can get it to the point to where there is more love than there is racism. Yeah. I, I hope you're right. Yes, I I do too. I pray for that. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Charles L. Hawley, speaker and author of the book, Black and White, Healing the Racial Divide. Charles, what would you like our listeners to have as their main takeaway today? There is hope for racial unity. There is hope for racial healing. And that you should not give up on people in your, in your family. Don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on your coworkers. Don't give up on people that you know. Just continue to speak words of healing, words of love. 
Thank you. Yes. You can get in touch with Charles Holly on his website, speakerholly.com. And Holly is spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y. So that's speakerholly.com. Also, we remind you to follow Late Boomers on our Instagram and follow both of your hosts on there also, at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. Thanks again, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Calling all speakers. E-Women Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.